Chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. This is the word of our Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would use your Holy Spirit now as the spotlight who illuminates to us truth that would affect our feelings and our attitudes and our behavior, especially the way that we view the temptations that we face in life and the trials that we come upon. May you give us strength to endure and persevere to the end and be given the great wreath of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Children, if you're taking notes and you're going to take pictures, now's the time to get your pens and papers out and begin drawing your pictures for Pastor Randy, all right? I expect to see good pictures that have to do with the sermon. Sometimes pictures get handed in and I just think to myself, now, come on, where were you when I was preaching? I don't care that you're only three. Get with the ball game. I'm just teasing, of course. I came back Friday night. I was so happy that my wife said, have you been taking drugs? Somebody else said, uh, boy, you got your husband back. She said, that ain't my husband. I've been married to him for 18 years. I don't know who that guy is. You know what's funny is I told someone the other day that Memorial Baptist Church has never seen me pastor when I've not been in school because I came here in school. And so um, I'm really looking forward to being done because of the vision that I've got for reaching Newcastle now. What we can do where there's not these other distractions and what we're going to do to knock on doors and go find those people whom God is stirring in their hearts and, and see God grow our church. I'm so excited about that in the future. Well, let's talk about the book of James this morning. Let's go to chapter 1 again. Of course, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 is one thought. Of course, the book of James is written by the half-brother of Jesus. I told you that the book of James is about half the verses in the book are imperatives, commands. That's why I stopped at verse 15, because verse 16 gives us another command. He says in verse 16, Don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. We'll pick, there, we'll pick up there next Sunday, all right? But for now, we come to this text here that follows what we talked about last week, where he talked about how we need to have wisdom when dealing with trials and that we don't need to fall into this worldly idea that we think if we only had money, we wouldn't have the trouble that we've got. Well, we come this morning now and we talk about the, the beginning place of, of our temptations and our trials. And I've titled the message, The Blame Game. Beware of the blame game. In the New Testament, the same Greek word is used for the two English words, test and temptation. In English, they're different words. In Greek, they're the same word. Think of it like this. God is the sovereign Lord of our lives, and He's in charge of all the trials that comfort us in their severity and in their duration. He permits one trial to touch us, and it becomes a test of our obedience and maturity. But then there's another trial that comes into our life, and that becomes a temptation to sin, and it destroys us. Let me try to illustrate it like this. <clears throat> Imagine two happy married families. They have a good household and a good marriage and they've got children. Both of them invite a woman into their home to live in their home because they want to minister to this woman. 
They want to do something for her. She needs some help. So they do that. It's a test for both of the marriages. For one of them, it leads the man in his attraction to the woman who's staying with him, whether it be physical or not. People are attracted to other people for lots of other reasons besides physical attraction, for whatever it is. But in one of the marriages, it prompts him to cleave to his wife more. It prompts him to cleave to his wife and fight the temptation and to make his own marriage stronger. In that case, it's a trial. And the trial produces perseverance and the trial results in a stronger marriage. For the other marriage, the same situation produces temptation. He leaves his wife for the woman that he was going to initially marry, uh, initially ministry, minister to, and the marriage is destroyed. He cleaves to the other woman. It's interesting how the person's response to the trial determines whether it's a trial that produces endurance and perseverance and proven character, or whether it produces temptation and sin and maybe ultimately condemnation. The Bible doesn't use different words. Context determines, is it trial or temptation? The hymn tells us every joy and every trial cometh from above. Trials are tests. Make no mistake about it. If you don't get anything else out of this, you get this. Trials are tests. And sometimes we do well, and sometimes we do horribly. Sometimes we horribly fail. But they're sent, the trials are sent by God our response to them dictates whether they're trials to strengthen us or whether they prove our character flaw and become temptations. James in our text is dealing with the, social, the second kind of a trial, the temptation kind of trial that Christians meet. The temptation to sin, the temptation to give in to your desires, the temptation to act fleshly, the temptation to justify yourself or to do that hedonistic pleasure that you secretly desire to do that no one knows about. In these few verses, he gives us four insights to trials. Let me give them to you one at a time. Insight number one, the purpose of trials. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. That's the purpose of the trial. He tells us why. You ever wonder why? Why the trial? Why rejection? Why failure? Why physical sickness? Why a struggle? Why? Why? He tells us right here. After making some parenthetical comments about wisdom and prayer and poverty and wealth, James picks up in verse 12 where he left off in verse 3. Look, it's the same exact language. The word trial in verse 12 is the same word as test in verse 3. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. They're the same word. The word perseverance in verse 12 is the same word as verse as, as the word endurance in verse 3. We know that this thing is connected because he's using the exact same language. James brings a side of our faith that is sometimes overlooked. The promise of reward for faithful service. I love John Piper. I love his theology. I love his Christian hedonism. But I I think that sometimes he's misunderstood. I hear guys say, 
I hear guys sometimes quote Piper and they say, we should be obedient to God because we love God and obedience is not motivated out of the love for God is, is wrong. And I would say that there's a degree to that in which I agree with. But let us not forget this. The Bible sets up reward for faithfulness over and over and over. So we should labor also for the reward. It's not wrong to labor for the reward too when the Bible says to do it. It's wrong if that's the only motive of the labor. Okay? Listen, husbands, how many of you do nice things for your wife because you realize that when you do nice things for her that she does nice things back? Do you ever do that? I do that sometimes. Sometimes I, I hate to wash the dishes. I just hate to wash them. Somebody's ever said, you got a dishwasher? Yep, got two of them named Charlie and Patty. Got two more that are coming up though. Amen? Amen? Cannot wait. Alright? Who needs Maytag? I got a Seth and Lydia. You know what? I hate washing dishes. But sometimes when the dishes are piled up, my wife is behind because she's got so many other things that are going on. And you know what? Sometimes I just think I'm going to do this for her because it's just something that she'd do for me. I'm going to help her out and I'll wash those dishes. And I don't do a whole lot of them, but I do them. I'll wash them and I'll dry them and I'll put them up. I'll do laundry sometimes too. And I, do, I just do other things. I do things for my wife. And I'll be honest with you, I don't always do them just because I'm the noble husband who loves Patty Shields and that's what I'm supposed to do. Sometimes I think to myself, well, I sure do wish that she'd do a few things for me. Let me try to help her out. Let me do some nice things for her as an example. That's part of the relationship. God says to us, you know what, guys? This thing about being faithful to me, you're going to get eternity with me. But let me tell you something else. I've got some great rewards for those that are faithful. Listen, heaven is enough. But you know what? It's not all. I've got some other stuff too. I've got some rewards for those that are faithful to me. That's what he says. He says, he said, Revelation chapter 2 verse 20 talks about it. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. That's what God says. God says this. Listen here. He doesn't say, be faithful unto death because I'm worthy for you to do that, which would have been an okay statement. That isn't what He says though. He says, be faithful unto death and I'm going to give you a crown of life. He says, faithfulness to me in tribulation results in a reward that's better than the payment you're going to pay in the tribulation. There's a purpose in trials. Eternal life is the reward to all of those who love God. One of the ways that God tests our love is through trials. Our love for God is demonstrated by and perfected through our willingness to suffer for the cause of Christ. Let me tell you something. If you're only faithful when everything is going good in your life, you're a false convert. Anybody can be faithful to God when it doesn't cost them anything. True faithfulness is tested in trial. It's the same as a marriage. Anybody can love their wife as long as their wife is loving them. It's the same in any relationship. Do you know that for there to be courage... There has to be danger. Do you ever think about that? There can't be courage if there isn't danger. Nobody gets a medal pinned on their chest for doing some great feat in peacetime. The medal of honor is not given in peacetime. Bronze stars are not rewarded in peacetime. 
Silver stars with a V device are not given to soldiers in a peacetime army. They're given to soldiers who show great courage in the heat of battle when bullets are flying and men are dying and death surrounds them and they find inside of them the intestinal fortitude to fight for the victory and they're rewarded because there was danger involved. Tell you something else, ladies. There cannot be submission in your marriage unless there is disagreement. Let me tell you something else, Christians. Trials in your life is what God uses to prove your faithfulness. Not crush you. Not destroy you. He does not have your... He does not have in His mind to beat you down. It is to prove His inner strength inside of you. That's the purpose of the trial. Not to crush you or destroy you. Paul said this in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So the first insight to trials that James gives us is that God does not send trials into our life to crush us, but rather to prove us, to test us, to prepare us for our eternal reward. Are you going through a trial right now? God's proving your faith. He's looking to see what's inside of you. One of my chapters I wrote on two, on two struggles to learning. One of them is called the challenge and the other one is called the imposter syndrome. And I struggle with both of them all the time. The challenge. The challenge that whenever something seems so big that you can't do it. The imposter syndrome, when you just think to yourself, I don't belong, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not strong enough. You know what the answer is to both of those struggles? The Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you because greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. God sends challenges to you that you look at in your own eyes and you say to yourself, I can't do this. And He says, I'm glad you realize that. I sent you something bigger than you. And then He says this, trust in me and we will do it. That's what God sends the challenge for, see? God sends the challenge. You know what it is? It's like having a reserve on a motorcycle and the instructor makes you run the motorcycle out of gas. So you have to turn it on the reserve and you realize there really is a reserve on the motorcycle and you don't have to push it. God takes us to that point where He runs us out and we say, I don't have anything in me that can do this. I don't have the strength. I don't have the courage. I don't have the wit. I don't have the intestinal fortitude. I don't have it. And God says, I've got you just where I want you. I've got it. Ask of me. True wisdom. Ask of me. And we say, God, I need you. And He says, I know you do. I want you to need me. And He picks us up and He says, now let's move on. And we learn that He's there for us. And we learn that His strength is inside of us through the Holy Spirit when we trust in His Word and we move ahead. That's the purpose of the trial. The purpose of the trial is to always knock you down so you don't ever think that you're doing it in your strength. That you always live in His strength. When we understand that, then we can say, I count it all joy to have my various trials because it again proves that Christ is faithful and He is in me and greater is He that is in me than is He that is in the world. That's the only way that we can say that about trials. Insight number two. Temptation to sin does not come from God. Verse 13. 
Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Insight number two, temptation to sin doesn't come from God. Trials come from God, not temptations. Again, the word translated trial and tempt is the same word, but context determines meaning. Would someone have the audacity? Would someone actually have the audacity to say what James is inferring? God tempted me. Nobody has the audacity to say that. Nobody has the audacity to look at God and say, I sinned, but it's your fault. No one has the audacity to say that. No one, no one is dumb enough to look at God and say, I sinned, but it's your fault. Right? Let's see. Adam? Why'd you eat that fruit? Well, you know, that woman that you gave me? We've been blaming God for our sin from the very beginning. Even the Scottish poet Robert Burns wrote, Thou knowest that thou hast formed me with passions wild and strong, and listening to their witching voice has often led me wrong. You know what he says? Oh God, you made me a man of passion. You made me a man of lust. And when I give in to them, I'm just giving in to what you made me to be. It's your fault that I am what I am. I hear people blaming God all the time. Well, I'm an alcoholic because my father was an alcoholic. I inherited the gene. Oh, baloney. There ain't nobody proved that. That's all theory. I ain't proved that. No one's proved that nonsense. We don't call it alcoholism in the Bible. We call it being a drunkard. I'm a thief because my mother was a thief and I inherited that gene. You're right. She got it from Adam, just like you. That's the gene you got. If you're a liar, you're a liar because you're a sinner, not because your daddy taught you to lie. No one's got to teach you how to lie. We've got to teach you how not to lie. No one's got to teach you how to steal. We've got to teach you how not to steal. No one's got to teach you how to be wicked. We've got to teach you how not to be wicked. Sinners need to learn that it is not God who causes them to sin. God sends the trial. What happens is the trial is like the crusher of the fruit. It just lets what's inside come out. James makes two reasons. He gives two reasons. Notice what he says. First, he says God cannot be tempted by evil. That's the first reason you can't blame God. Temptation to sin does not come from God. Reason number one, because God can't be tempted by evil. The Lord is not like the gods of the nations who are tempted by the sight of beautiful women. And so they step down from the mountain of the gods and seduce the, these girls. Though, uh, these gods can also be provoked to anger by people making fun of them. Now, have you seen the movie? Have you seen the movie? I think it's called Troy with Brad Pitt in it. I don't, I don't, don't, don't hammer me on the rating. I don't even know what it's rated. I don't know. I just know that I, I saw, there's a scene in the movie where they're about to have this battle and one of the generals says to the other one, don't mess with the temple. You'll make the gods mad. This idea that we've got to, we've got to tiptoe around the gods or we're going to provoke them to come down here like some angry parent who loses their temper and smacks us around. Let me tell you something. You don't provoke God. And I'm not saying that God doesn't get angry at your sin. I'm saying this though. God doesn't ever fly off the handle like you and I do. God is not tempted to sin like you and I are. 
God is not like that. Even with His omnipotence, God is not like that. The prophet Elijah suggested to the priests of Baal who were praying in vain for the fire to fall that their unresponsive God has been tempted into lazy slumbering and so he's ignoring their plight. Oh, your God, Elijah says to the worshippers of Baal, your God must be asleep. Yell louder. You know, it's funny how sometimes people say preachers shouldn't be mean-spirited. Man, you ought to read some of the prophets of the Old Testament. There ain't a preacher today mean-spirited like some of those guys were. We might call others heretics, but we don't take out our sword and hack a bunch, 70 of them to death at one time. If you tried to tempt God, there's nothing in Him to which sin can appeal. See, temptation implies a desire. I am not tempted to eat spinach. I want you to know, if you and I go out to dinner together and you get a big pile of spinach... Or greens? Whew. I'd like to know who thought... Who was the first person to thought? Let's cook up some of that grass and eat it. You know? You get you a big pile of it and you set it on your plate and I haven't got mine yet and you get up to go get yourself a drink. I am not tempted to take any of your greens. Now, you put a frozen ding-dong on that plate and you better have an armed guard if you leave it. Okay? Temptation implies a desire. God has no desires for things that He cannot provide in Himself that are not all good. Our God is not tempted because He cannot be tempted. The Lord Jesus saw all the glory of the nations of the world, but that sight did not move Him to bow down and worship Satan. God cannot be taught or bought or caught by evil. He is the Father of lights, not the Father of subtle shades and shadows. God is straight. He cannot be tempted, not by anyone or anything. God is always fair in whatever He does, however painful or delayed our providences might be. Whatever God does is right. All of His ways are just. There is no iniquity in Him. Upright and righteous is he, Moses says. The rock, perfect in all of his ways. The second statement that James makes is brief and categorical. God does not tempt anyone to sin. He never seeks to undermine anyone's life. The Lord never makes sin seem irresistibly lovely. God does not allow trials into your life that seem that and then make them to be irresistibly lovely to trick you up in some way. He puts such he never puts pressure upon us that we can't help from sinning. In fact, the Bible tells us exactly the opposite. The Bible says, No temptation has seized you but that which is common to man, and God is always faithful to provide a way out for you. But see, the problem is, is the way that God provides out is not always the way that we want Him to provide the way out. Sometimes the way out is get on your belly and crawl. Sometimes the way out is... Stand up and confess. Sometimes the way out is say, I need help. You see, God's way out is not often the way we want. It's usually some other way. It's usually some way that's going to be humbling to us. And we who are so infected with pride refuse to take His way, thinking that we can do it. And then again, we find ourselves on our face saying, I can't believe that I'm here again. Insight number three to these trials and temptations. Temptation to sin comes from your own evil desire. That's what he says in verse 14. Each one is tempted by his own lust. It's not from God. 
It's from you. In verse 14, the fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves that we are underlings, says Shakespeare. Yes, underlings of our master's sin. God ordains the death of His own Son that was the worst sin that the universe has ever witnessed. Jesus' death was predetermined by God, but that in no way removes the obligation of answering to God for that crime. The men who who bribed false witnesses, those who lied under oath, and the execution squad that Jesus that beat Jesus up, the crowd that mocked Him as He hanged on the cross, they're all accountable. You with wicked hands put Him to death, Peter says in Acts chapter 2 in his sermon. Peter says, none of us may blame God's sovereignty for our own freely performed sinful actions. Now, how do you reconcile man's responsibility for his actions with the fact that God ordains everything that comes to pass? That's the question I get asked most often. How do you reconcile it? If God is sovereign, I love, I, I, I love R.C. Sproul's illustration in the book Chosen by God, and he, and he talks about the sovereignty of God over even the, the smallest of molecules in the earth. And he gives an illustration, and he says it's about a, it's about a war where, there, where, the, where, where orders are carried back and forth from the front lines by, by, rider, uh, uh, by a horse rider rather than by radio. And he says, for a lack of a nail, the shoe was lost, the horseshoe. For a lack of a shoe, the horse was lost. For a lack of a horse, the rider was lost. For a lack of a rider, the message was lost. For a lack of a message, the war was lost. All because one little nail couldn't be found to put on a horseshoe. He said, see, if, if God isn't sovereign over everything, then God isn't, isn't sovereign over anything. If there's one renegade molecule that's out there, that's, God says, I can't do anything about that. But see, the problem is, is then we in our humanity, we come along and we say, well, if God is sovereign over all of these things, then how does He hold us responsible? Because He could have ordained it to be some other way. Well, I can only give you the answer that the Bible gives in Romans chapter 9, verse 20. Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? He doesn't explain it to us. He just says that's the way it is. He says, I'm sovereign and you're accountable and that's the way it is. He doesn't say, now let me give you every minute detail to this. He just says, that's the way it is. We affirm with all of our might the foreordination of God because it is essential to the integrity of this great biblical revelation and to the invincible nature of God's application of redemption. What He determines, He does. It's also the, the precondition of the intelligibility of the universe in which we live. God says this. God says, I run my universe, I set it up this way, and you are accountable. The New Testament equally affirms this. When James says, each one is tempted when he, by his own will and his own desire, is dragged away. It is a fact into behavior science, sociology, politics, and criminology, a great deal of determinism has been brought which suggests that some aberrant behavior is unavoidable. Some people just cannot avoid sinning. Everybody's familiar with the BTK killer by now. You know what I found interesting? I found interesting that every time you watch an interview on it, and they are just running this thing into the ground, but every time you watch an interview on it, this is inevitably a reporter says this. The best that we can tell, his father didn't beat him. The best that we can tell, his mother wasn't an alcoholic. 
the best that we can tell, he wasn't bullied in school. Nobody believes that he was molested. So what caused him to do it? You see what they're saying, right? You see, what they're saying is, is that if we could say his daddy molested him, we could blame his daddy for what he did, see? He was just a product of his environment. If we could say his mama was an alcoholic, we could blame his mama for what he did. We could say he's just a product of his environment. If we could say he was bullied in school, we could say it was those bullies, see, stop that bullying in school. He's a product of his environment, but they can't find any rational reason for why he did it. I've got a rational reason. Romans 5.12. Because he's a fallen, totally depraved, sinful human being who had urges that he did not fight off. And let me say something shocking to you. But by the grace of God, so go any one of us. Because you haven't murdered anybody with an axe or a gun. Who did you kill this week with your tongue? Because you've not raped any women, men. Who did you molest with your mind? Because you haven't gone out and stolen with a gun from the bank. How many of you robbed God this morning with your tithes and offerings? Be careful about pointing to these sensational cases and saying, look how bad they are. But by the grace of God, it could be any one of us. Any one of us. Don't pretend that you are something that you're not. Remember the publishing of the Pharisee? Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like that publishing over there. And the Pharisee dare not, or the publisher not even look his eyes up to heaven, but say, Oh God, forgive me. Forgive me, a sinner condemned and unclean. Now, I'm not in any way trying to belittle what BTK did. It's horrible, atrocious what he did. And I'm not trying to say that your sins in your mind can be equated to the equality of that. But I am saying this. Don't downplay your mental sin. And some of you, your physical sin. Don't downplay it. It's sin. It's condemnable to hell. Matthew 5.48 said, Lest you be perfect. Be ye therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not see the kingdom of God. If you, The book of James says if you violate the law in one place, you violated all of it. We all need the grace of God to wage the war against the sin that's within. And you say, but we have these genetic makeups. Listen, listen, I'm not denying that genetics may mean that you're more inclined toward one sin or the other, but it's still your willful choice. You still choose to do it. I'm not tempted by some of the things that some of you are tempted by, and you're not tempted by some of the things that I'm tempted by. But listen, whatever your temptation is, when you give in to it, it's still your choice to do so. Don't blame your genetics. Don't blame your environment. Don't blame your parents. Look in the mirror and point the finger where the finger should be pointed. You choose to sin. That's what James says. Bible-believing Christians affirm the dignity of human beings and insist that everyone acts as they do by their own evil desires. They're dragged away and enticed. Men are not prisoners of their genes or their heredity or their environment or their background or their education or their peer group. Listen, listen, they've been doing all of these specials. I've kind of watched some of these things. It was the same with Jeffrey Dahmer. No reason at all why Dahmer did what he did. Grew up in a middle-class American home in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Didn't have any of those horrible things that happened to him. His dad worked late hours and his parents argued. Hello? Hello? 
His dad worked a lot of hours and his parents argued. It wasn't environmental. It was his wicked choices to give in. Let me tell you something too. Sin is a slippery slope. You begin to give in a little bit. It's just a matter of time before you'll give in a lot. Should there be something in a man's genetic code that makes him more vulnerable to homosexual activity or to drunkenness? Every man can get, every man yet transcends those things too. No one need despair. We're not animals. We're men created and women created in the image of God. And when we sin, we do so because we're enticed by our own internal lust. James says that all men are drawn away by their own desires. Until this point, until this part of this letter, James has been writing about trials from without. But now he addresses the whole internal struggle. Your, your desires. Your internal natural desires. By the way, the word is neutral. It's the word used of Jesus' desire to eat Passover with the disciples or of an angel's desire to look into the prophet's message of the sufferings and glories of the Messiah. It's a mild word. Your own desires. It's a mild word that in itself should set all sorts of red lights flashing off. My God-given desires, so much as a part of my own manhood, have turned into sinful desires because I, the creature, has become me, the sinner. Hence, the translators of the NIV have correctly expounded the phrase desire, saying that it's in form of the evil desire of men that our sins come. Why do we sin? Not because God tempts us, but because we give in to our own internal desires. Last insight. Notice the chain reaction that James brings out in verse 15. It's a chain reaction. When lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Let me just summarize this real quickly so I can move into the conclusion. It's a chain reaction. Let me use it like this. It's a train reaction for an illustration. I don't know if you've ever ridden on a train or not. I've ridden on a train quite a few times in Europe. We traveled by train. Now, here in America, in our trains, they move so fast and they have these automatic doors. There's no way to do this. But in Europe, you could still do it. You still can do it in some places. You want to see somebody off. They don't ever pick up your tickets on the train until the train's moving. I mean, you're, you're long down the road before they come through and ask for your tickets. So you walk your family member, you put them on the train, you take them to their, their cart, their seat, you set them down, you put their baggage up. You might sit and talk with them for a few minutes. Give them a kiss. Pray with them. Woo-hoo! The train's fixing to move. The train starts rolling out. You can still talk to your family member for just a few minutes. You can walk to the door. You can get a hold of the handle because the train's just barely moving and you can step off and the train will go on. How fast do you want the train moving before you step off? I don't know about you, but I don't want moving very fast. I'll tell you why. I learned a real hard lesson about forward movement when I was 10 years old. My sister had a baby. and I had a big chewing gum cigar in my mouth. I was 10. I thought it was cool. I was standing on the back of a friend's pickup truck bumper holding on to the tailgate, and they were driving around the neighborhood honking the horn because my sister had her baby. And I thought I'd just step off that tailgate or off that bumper when that truck was moving about 15 miles an hour. And I did. And I had to stick my fingers in my throat to pull that chewing gum cigar out of my throat because when I stepped off, and that truck was moving, and all of a sudden I wasn't, I just went right on the pavement. You know what? 
I want to get off the train before it's moving very fast. You know what he says here when he says, lust, when it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. Lust, you're on the train. When it's conceived, it gives forth to sin. Sin is moving. That train's moving. And when its sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. You don't get off that train soon enough, that train's on a head-on collision with another train. Everybody on board is going to die. What he says is this. He says, when you realize that you're being tempted, you better get off the train. You better do something before it's too late. Because if you don't, you're going to have a head-on collision. Now, let me close with a couple of admonitions. Number one, the very origins of sin have to be resisted if the chain reaction is to be stopped. The origins of sin. Listen, that's why Paul said in Philippians 4.8, whatever things are true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, think about these things. If you allow your imagination to be dragged away to contemplate the possibility of sin, the chain reaction has started. Nobody gets up and just commits some horrendous sin. They think about it. They think about how they can do it. They think about the pleasure it'll bring. They think about the way they can get around it. They think about what they'll just do it for a little while and then stop doing it. And then they think about it and think about it and think about it and then they get over the highest hurdle, which is the first step to do it. And once they get over that, all the hurdles drop because you've done it once. Now it's easier to do it again. And again, and again, and before long, you're not even running having to hurdle anything. Before long, you're just running because the hurdles are all gone and you're running headlong into your sin. Your train is moving. So James would say this, the moment you recognize temptation, you better recognize that and get a hold of it right then and put it to death. Get a hold of it right then and slay it because the train is moving. Al Martin says this, strike at the first, strike at the first risings of sin. Listen, he says this, the sinful man's hobby is seducing women. His first encounter always begins with modest banter, but he has one thing in his mind, the destruction of the purity of another woman. So sin comes to us with modest proposals. Indulge me this little bit. Give quarter this little bit. But child of God, never forget sin's real intentions. Every stringing of envy, if it had its way, would lead to murder and destruction. Every doubt on any phrase of Scripture, if it had its way, would lead to the ultimate denial of God and of every truth of Scripture. Every breathing of pride in its first strings, if it had its way would run and tear the crown of God right off of His head. Every uncertain thought, if it had its way, would lead us actually to wallow in the filth of lechery and immorality. Strike at the first risings of sin. Number two. That was the negative. The positive is more important. Look to Jesus Christ to deliver you from it. You know, it's interesting that when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the, in, the, in, the, in the desert, that he just quoted Scripture to him. I know you're hungry. Man, you haven't had anything to eat in 40 days. And I know what you can do. You're the agent of creation. Turn these rocks into hot bread right now. I'll sit down and we'll have some bread together. Get away from me, Satan. It's written in the Word of God that man shall live, not, not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Well, come on up here with me on this pinnacle. Let me show you the kingdoms of the world that I'm the prince over. 
If you'll bow down and you'll give this to me, get away from me, Satan. It's written, you shall not tempt the Lord thy God. Cast yourself down. The angels will protect you. He quotes scripture to him. Quote scripture. There's a reason why the psalmist said, your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's so that when you are being tempted, you can begin to wage the war. Recognize it and wage the war. Now, I want to tell you something. Listen, sometimes people will think you're crazy. I don't know about you, but I whisper to myself a lot. I was on the telephone once talking. A lady was talking to me from church in Tennessee, and she was talking to me. And I was, and when she called me to ask me, it was something insignificant. I say that up front in case you call me this week with something important. But when she called me, I was having a struggle with something. And I was kind of just talking to myself. And she was just kind of talking, kind of rambling. And I kind of lost, I kind of lost focus. And I started talking to myself. It's kind of whispering to myself. What are you doing? You know, man, what's going on? And she said, Huh? Huh? What? What'd you say? Who are you talking to? <laughs> Friday night, we got home, and I went for a walk, and I'm holding Lydia, and while we're walking, I start talking to myself, and I said to myself, shut up. Just shut up. I said that to myself. Well, Lydia was talking to me, and she said, okay. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to me. I said, I'm not talking to you, lady. I'm talking to myself. I was just having st struggles of doubt and fear and all of these things. So I just, I just talked to myself. Do you do that? I think that's what James has in mind. Talk to yourself. Say to yourself, no, no, I'm not giving in to you. Quote Scripture. Call it out loud. Cry out to God. Say to God, Lord, God, I'm in a battle here. I'm in a battle and I, and I need your strength. I'm telling you, just... Saying those words is like flipping the light on. Something, there's something just supernatural about it when you deny Satan to trick you into thinking you can do it in your own strength. And if you don't do it, the train just picks up speed in time. And you're either going to get hurt getting off or die staying on. So I leave you with this charge. Wage war with your sin.